So what's the famous saying? Two things you should never talk about at the dinner table with your family. Politics and religion. You got it. You guys must have had awkward conversations at some point in your life story. Politics and religion are the two things you should never talk about at the dinner table with your family. Well, welcome to Christchurch because that's exactly what Jesus talks about this morning. (laughs) Those are the exact two questions that he has asked about today. These two hot button issues. They were touchy subjects then even more so than now. And there's still things that we think about and concern us now. What's really going on in this story that we've read together is not just people, you know, seeking genuine answers from Jesus to their honest questions. No, these people, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, as Jesus has entered the city a few days before he's going to be put to death on a cross, these people are after him. They want to trap him, we read at the beginning of our story this morning. They're the elite religious establishment of Israel, and they're trying to find a way to get Jesus into trouble, you see. They're opposed to him. They're looking for a way to take him down. Jesus is in a fight here. And we've seen that that's been building up as we've been making our way through Mark's gospel. He's entered into Jerusalem, and the conflict heightens. The opposition to Jesus and to his teaching and to his obvious power is mounting. And so now the leaders of old Israel come and drop all kinds of questions on him. And here in our story this morning, he stands up and takes it. Really what's going on here, though, is that Jesus is not primarily fighting the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees. Jesus is primarily fighting the prince of darkness, Grimm himself, Satan, who by this point is very worried about him. Notice in verse 15, Jesus says, why do you put me to the test? Remember way back in Mark 1, it was Satan who would put Jesus to the test. And now in Mark 12, he's doing the exact same thing through these religious leaders. So how is Jesus tested? What is exactly happening here in the fight? Well, they're asking Jesus two very difficult, very touchy, very sensitive questions in order to entrap him. And I want us to just think on just, we can't go into detail on either of those this morning, but we're going to work our way through this text. And we want to ask ourselves what we can learn from Jesus's interaction here. How are these issues relevant for us? And so what I'm going to do is give you sort of one main idea like we typically do at Christ Church. And then we're going to break this text down chiefly into these two questions Jesus is asking or Jesus is being asked and answering. We're going to look at the question, the answer, and the application for both of these questions, okay? But here's the main idea that I want you to keep in mind as we move through the story together, okay? Here's the big point. Jesus gives honest answers to dishonest questions, so that we can trust his wisdom and authority, okay? That's what I want you to take away. Jesus gives honest answers to dishonest questions so that we can trust, so that you can trust his wisdom and his authority. So two hot topics, politics and religion. The question, the answer, the application. Here we go. First, hot topic number one, verses 13 through 17, politics. So here's the question. Okay, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who, by the way, normally were like mortal enemies, 
but they've been united at this point against a common enemy, Jesus. They've sent this delegation of experts, and they're trying to trap Jesus, we read there in verse 13. That word trap is like a hunting word. It's when you sort of try and trap a fox or try to trap some animal that you're hunting. They are after him, and Jesus is the mark. Everybody at this point knows it, so they approach him. And notice what they say in verse 14. They try to flatter him at first. You see that there? Teacher, we know that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. Now, if you're a wary sort of person and you hear someone talking to you like that, you might initially think, what does this person want from me? You know, you come up to me and say, Luke, you are undoubtedly one of the best preachers I've ever heard. I'm so glad that I was here today. Thank you so much for that very insightful and brilliant comment you just made on the text. Uh, Thank you very much in my head sort of being built up, but deep down, you know, you might be thinking, what does this person want? So that's exactly what's going on here with Jesus. They're buttering him up. They're flattering him. And then boom, they drop the bomb, right? Verse 14. Here's the actual question. Um, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So, okay, here's the deal. That's a trick question. Everyone hated paying taxes, of course. But in that day, 2,000 years ago, Jewish people really, really hated paying taxes taxes. The tax being referred to here is the census tax. It's the tax that Joseph and Mary and the Christmas story, remember they had to go to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem and register for the census so that the Roman empire would know how many people there were to pay the taxes, right? So this is a particularly hated tax for Jewish people. And the reason they hated it so much is because it reminds them that they are not free, that they have an occupying power who exerts authority over him, over them, and who domineers them and who mistreats them. And so when the Pharisees are asking this question of Jesus, they're setting him up to disappoint one group of people, no matter what his answer is going to be. So if Jesus says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to seem like he's siding with the Romans. It's going to be a very anti-Jewish thing to say. And the Jewish zealots and politically minded revolutionaries are really not going to like that. But if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, you shouldn't do it, then he's going to anger the Romans, the occupying authorities, even though he's going to make the zealots and the insurrectionists appear happy. So the idea here is that either way he answers, he's going to either appear to be an insurrectionist or a supporter of Rome. Either way, one group is going to hate his answer. You know, this is one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? You know, you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. It's a trick question. Jesus is getting set up. And I want you to remember in the big picture that the Pharisees don't care which answer Jesus gives. They are not honest seekers or questioners. They simply want to trap him and find cause to murder him. But Jesus answers the question in a remarkable way. And in his answer also gives us very positive, straightforward teaching. So the question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? It's a political question. And here's the answer. Now, listen, entire books have been written about Jesus's answer here and its implication. So we're going to summarize and simplify. Jesus' answer is basically, yes, but. 
Don't you love those answers? Yes, but. And the brilliance of his answer is that he avoids the trap on both sides. So first he says, if you'll look there in verse 16 and 17, give to Caesar, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, you do not have the right, Jewish nationalists, to revolt by not paying taxes. I mean, Jesus is is very clear on that. Even though you were under foreign occupation by the Romans, you still should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he's particularly referring to paying taxes there, which is why he has someone bring him a coin, an ancient Roman denarius. And that fits with other very clear teaching of the Bible. Like the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So he answers there the zealots and the resurrection, mind, uh, yeah, the re, uh, revolution-minded people, excuse me, the revolution-minded people. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he also says, and give to God's what is God's. And here's the brilliance in Jesus' answer. Really what he's communicating is this. Caesar, the state... The government is a real authority, but it is not an ultimate authority. Caesar is not God. Jesus is communicating here this very important truth. You owe the state honor as a legitimate authority, but you must not ever give the state supreme authority. That is reserved for God and for God alone. And so with this second part of the sentence, he answers the Romans and with those who are sympathetic to the governing power of his day. Caesar is not God. The state is not a supreme authority, although it is a valid authority. And by the way, it's unquestionable that the state throughout history has a tendency to overreach its authority and see itself as supreme. That was the case in Rome. Caesar was seen as sort of a a semi-god, as a divine character. And that's been the case in many other nations throughout world history. The scriptures teach us to resist this notion and to reserve supreme allegiance to God and to God alone. Okay, so that's Jesus's answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. So here's application for you today to this political hot-button issue that Jesus has asked him 2,000 years ago. Now, again, there's a million things that we can say here. And I know for a fact that some of you have all sorts of very, very interesting questions rattling around in your head, most of which I'm not going to address. I'd love to talk to you afterwards about it if you're calm. Um, Two pieces of application. First, in most cases and situations... The Christian is called by Jesus Christ here to obey the laws of the land because the civil government, federal, state, and local, is a valid authority that has its power because God has given it to them. So what if I don't like my tax rate? Pay exactly what you owe anyway. What if I disagree with how the government uses my tax dollars? Pay exactly what you owe anyway. What if, uh, what if I know of some tax loopholes, Pastor, you know, that aren't strictly legal, but I know I can get away with it without any questions from the IRS? 
Stop doing that. You are sinning against God if you do this and you need to stop. So the Christian is called by Jesus to obey the laws of the state because the state is a valid and legitimate authority, including paying our taxes. Second piece of application. Now that I've made most of you mad. Uh, The state is not your ultimate authority and you should never give the state your ultimate allegiance. It is a legitimate, proximate authority. A legitimate, proximate authority. I think it's fair to say that in almost every case, the Christian is not called to violently revolt against the state, but nor is the Christian ever to worship the state or see it as supreme. Now, I know, I know, this entire issue raises all manner of really good and insightful questions, but I'm going to plead our legitimate lack of time and try to sum this up by reminding us of what the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. Philippians chapter 3, he says that our real citizenship is in heaven. Our ultimate allegiance belongs to a kingdom that is not of this world. Listen to a New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson commenting on that text, Philippians chapter 3. Here's what he says. First century Christians may have been citizens of the Roman Empire, but they have a more fundamental allegiance. Their citizenship is in heaven. Jesus' power is so extensive that it brings everything under his control. And this claim is at least in part political. Inevitably then, Christians maintain some fundamental allegiances that set them apart from other citizens in the empire who feel no loyalty whatsoever to a citizenship in heaven. So practical applications, we are called to obey the civil authority, but we are not called to make or see the civil authority as a supreme authority over us. So Jesus knocks the fastball of the Pharisees out of the park. He deals with the political question. And then, in the same setting, the Sadducees, another religious group, come and ask him another hot-button question. He's covered religion, right? And now he's asked, or excuse me, he's covered politics, and now he's asked about religion. So let's look at that together in our remaining time. Remembering our main point, okay? These aren't merely academic games, that Mark is recording for us here. Mark has included these interactions to give us positive teaching from Jesus and also to help us see the supreme wisdom and authority of Jesus, to help us to see that Jesus is someone who is worth following. He is worthy of our allegiance. Okay, so hot topic two, religion, verses 18 through 27. So what's the question here? Okay, the Sadducees approach him next with this crazy theology question. This is, you know, akin to how many angels can dance on the pen of a needle sort of question, right? And remember, they're not after straight answers either. They want to trap Jesus. They're not honest skeptics or seekers or theologians. And and there's two things you've got to get about the Sadducees as a group if you're going to understand what's going on here. First, as Mark tells us, the thing that separated the Sadducees doctrinally is that they denied the doctrine of resurrection after the dead, after death. There is no resurrection. Once you die, it's all over. And the second thing you need to get about the Sadducees is that they only saw as authoritative the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
Everything after that they thought was not authoritative, and so they only held to the five books of Moses. Those are significant things you've got to get. And so this is the group that comes to Jesus and asks him this really kind of weird question. The actual issue is this situation where a woman has seven husbands and they all die one after the other. And if she dies, which one of the guys is she going to be married to in heaven after the resurrection? Okay, stay with me. What's going on here? This is a form of a classic argument that is called a reductio ad absurdum. I'm sure that's helpful. Let me, let me make that practical, okay? In other words, this is a type of argument that is intended to show that the premise of the question, in this case, the doctrine of the resurrection, is invalid by pointing to the absurdity of the premise's logical conclusions. So to make that clear, here's what the Sadducees are saying. Jesus don't you see how ridiculous the idea of a bodily resurrection after death is? You know, is this woman going to be the wife of seven brothers in heaven? I mean, that breaks all sorts of other Old Testament laws. That seems absurd. It seems illogical. It creates all kinds of situations and issues that just don't make sense. Therefore, the whole idea of resurrection is absurd as well. Does that make sense? That's the question. That's the approach that the Sadducees are bringing to Jesus. So their real question isn't, whose wife is this person going to be? Their real question is, how could anyone really believe in resurrection after death at all? So what does Jesus do here? Well, a couple of things by way of the answer. First, Jesus says very clearly that they are wrong. It's just fair for us to see that. He says they are wrong about the entire premise. There absolutely is, according to Jesus of Nazareth, such a thing as resurrection from the dead. He says they do not know either the scriptures that they claim to know and teach, nor do they know the character of God. Verse 24. And then Jesus, he shows them with this biblical argument why they are wrong. And remember, they only hold as authoritative the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus quotes from the second book, Exodus, this famous story. He says the story about the bush where Moses comes before the burning bush and God, Yahweh, speaks to him out of the bush. And here's what Jesus quotes from that story. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Here's the point. God does not say in Exodus 3 to Moses... 500 plus years after Abraham has died, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, if he is the God of these men, they must be living men. The fact of God's commitment, the fact of God's promise to these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to all Christians, by the way, requires that they live in resurrection power beyond death in order to receive what God initially promised to them. Here's the question Jesus is returning really to them. Could the living, saving, promise-keeping God establish a relationship with these men only to allow that relationship to be terminated after their deaths. No, Jesus is saying. 
To be the God of such men implies an ongoing, caring, protecting, helping, saving relationship. Which is as permanent as the God who initiated the relationship in the first place. Abraham or Isaac or Jacob did not continue to exist after their earth. If, if they didn't continue to exist after they died, then God's promise to them when they were alive is empty and void and it makes God out to be a liar. So God's faithfulness to his own promises is at stake in the doctrine of the resurrection. So Jesus says, you are wrong. There will be a resurrection. God will raise the dead because he cannot fail to keep the promises that he has made to them. He will be their God on into eternity and they will be his people. So why would you believe in the resurrection, Jesus, the Sadducees say? And Jesus responds by saying, because the character of God and the promise of God demands that the resurrection be true. Okay? And then secondly, very quickly, Jesus goes on to answer their question directly and says, there will be no marriage in heaven. That's basically what he says. We will be like the angels. And by the way, not in the sense that we're just going to be spirit. That's not true. And we're not going to be in this, uh, like the angels in the sense that we're going to be somehow like asexual, that there will be no way to identify gender, male versus female in heaven. That's not true either. We will be like the angels in the sense that the primary purpose for which marriage exists in this life, procreation and, and lifelong fellowship, will not be necessary in the life to come. Okay, let me say that again. The primary purpose for which marriage exists in this life will not be necessary in the life to come. So that's the answer. Sorry. Application. And we're finished, okay? Two things, again. First, and I know some of you might be feeling this, don't be discouraged by this idea or think that heaven will somehow be less than perfect because you won't be married to your loved significant other or spouse in heaven. Uh, Think about it like this. You will be deprived of nothing in heaven that is essential to your optimal happiness. You will be deprived of nothing in heaven that is essential to your optimal happiness. You may think, I'd love to be married to my spouse in heaven, on and on and on into eternity as we worship God together. That sounds great to us. But if we knew everything that God knows, we would be totally content with that fact. And we would understand that whatever God has planned for us there, it's going to be better than anything we could ever experience in this life. There is nothing essential to our optimal and ultimate happiness in heaven that will not be waiting for us when we get there. First piece of application, okay? Second, and this is really crucial, I think, um, the wonderful gospel truth of these words of Jesus for us to apply to our hearts today is that our destiny is to have full and perfect communion with the living God forever in heaven. And it's worth saying, that will be by far the greatest imaginable life. 
So the question becomes, and this is always the question, whether implicit or explicit in the life and teaching of Jesus, the question becomes, are you ready and prepared to enter into that resurrection life? Are you prepared and ready to live forever with a new and glorious, perfected body and spirit with Jesus? Have you connected with the Savior Jesus by faith? Have you trusted in him? That is what ultimately this text is asking and demanding of you and of me. Do we see Jesus's wisdom and authority and power and grace and love? Can we trust him with our lives? Can we trust him with our deaths? You see, Jesus as a good king calls you to open your eyes and see his great and matchless authority, his great and matchless wisdom. These difficult theological and political questions are to him like, you know, like a fly running around that he could easily swat away. They're nothing to him. And the whole idea that Mark wants to communicate to us this morning is that he is infinitely worth our allegiance. He is infinitely valuable and therefore infinitely worth our following. That is the kind of king, that is the kind of savior that Jesus is. People say that um, the hardest thing to do in sports, and I think this is debatable, but the hardest thing to do in sports, according to many people, is to hit like a hundred mile an hour fastball with a baseball bat. I mean, there's a lot of hard things to do in sports, but that would be hard. Or to hit, you know, like an 88 mile an hour slider that has, you know, really nasty movement on it when it's coming in. Um, Super, super hard to do. And one of the amazing things, whether you like baseball or not, you've got to admit it's amazing that some human beings are able with a wooden stick to hit a hard, small ball coming at them 100 miles an hour Much less, you know, not only do they make contact, they can hit it like 500 feet into the air. That's an incredible thing. It sort of makes you just drop your mouth and marvel. Think about Jesus here as a hitter that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees are doing their best to strike out. They're throwing gas, right? 100 mile an hour heat. They're throwing change-ups. They're throwing sliders. They're doing everything they can to make him look foolish. But Jesus cannot be struck out. They cannot deal with his power. They cannot deal with his wisdom. They cannot handle his supreme authority. Mark tells us that the people marveled at him. Eugene Peterson translates that as like this. They stood with their mouths hanging open. Is that your response to Jesus Christ? He is a mighty and a strong and a loving king who calls you to himself. Can you believe in him? Can you follow him? Can you see him for who he really is? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and love you for how gracious you have been to us in giving to us stories preserved in the scripture in giving to us these ancient interactions that Jesus had with a very crafty, very intelligent, very learned and studied men who were out to get him, who opposed him, who thought that they could trap him in their words. 
Father, we thank you that we see so clearly here as Jesus touches on these tough issues that he is not in the least bit phased by the attempts of humans to overwhelm him. And even in the midst of not allowing himself to be phased, he also gives us positive instruction, rules for how we are to live. He shows us the way of fulfillment, the way of human flourishing. He shows us what the good life truly is. And so, Father, we ask this morning, no matter where we're at spiritually, no matter what we're feeling or thinking, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. And not just to see Jesus clearly, but to act upon what we see to act upon what we understand of him, to turn from our false allegiances, to turn from this idea that we are ultimate, to turn from the idea that the world revolves around us and to see that Jesus is the king and that submitting to him, following him, loving him, serving him is the best possible life. Lord, may we all make that choice to submit to his kingship even today. Father, we struggle to do that because our hearts are by nature wandering away from you as we've already sung together this morning. And so we pray that you would draw us back to yourself by your Holy Spirit's power and grace. Do this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.